All right, hey everybody. Um, I am here today with an organist, pianist, and music director, uh, Rick Deasley. How are you doing tonight, man? Doing well, thank you. Sweet, good. Um, so I know, I met you from Atonement, Atonement Lutheran, and um, tell, uh, that, that's where my parents and, and I went in high school uh, to go to church here in Kansas City. Um, Tell, tell everybody a little bit about what you what you do at Atonement. Um, well, I'm the music director there, mm -hmm. and I play the organ, and I uh, direct the um, the band, and um, administer the music program, which includes a uh, choir director and a handbell director, mm -hmm. and then you know there are associated things with it like um, the Christmas pageant, for mm -hmm. example, which is going on right now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. How, how is, so like in regards to that, does, because I know at least last year, I mean, we've got, I've gone to church there for a long time, but the, I know during, especially like the Christmas concert, uh, I mean, last year, I mean, it, it was probably 20 extra musicians, right? I mean, there, right. you had the choir yourself and then these yeah. handful of other people. How, how is that to kind of coordinate all that well you know it could be kind of crazy depending on the time of year but mm -hmm. uh, it's very rewarding uh, we have some really talented musicians in-house mm -hmm. uh, we also pull in musicians from around town including some pros mm -hmm. like yourself yeah, and well, others. yeah thanks so yeah yeah that's cool man I mean is there any uh, I mean obviously it can get a little hectic um, but uh, is is that kind of fun and rewarding to, to deal with that many musicians over the year? Ab like, absolutely. Yeah. Um, because musicians all have different influences, um, they bring their own unique qualities to those gigs. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, having gotten to know them over time, then um, some of their influences have rubbed off on me and given me ideas, for mm -hmm. example, you know. And uh, so that's been, for example, um, a percussionist that often plays at Atonement, John Curry. I know John, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Plays in many different styles of bands around town, and it's brought in everything from Calypso to mm. uh, Mexican marimba mm. and, and just about everything in between. So uh, so I've really benefited from my associations with those folks. Too. Oh, yeah. He's real good at hand drums, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. John's a superb all-around musician. Right. Yeah, I, I really like him. He's a really nice guy and a very good musician. Um, what... So just like keeping on that subject, what uh, sometimes is there, like I know when I ran my band, there's so many good musicians in the city, but I think so people like Miles Davis are really good at like looking at a guy, he knows he's really good. I mean, these people he's dealing with are pros, but sure. he has this idea of what kind of, what, what kind of album he's doing, mm -hmm. and he goes, okay, I want that guy, but I want you to do this because I know that your ideas are nuts. You know, his musical ideas are really cool compared to this guy. This right. guy has the great tone. I want him for this and I want you for that, you know. Sure. Do you, is, is that challenging or fun to like kind of have these musicians but kind of know not just that they play but kind of know their strengths and weaknesses? Like, sure. Yeah, an example would be um, we have a periodic uh, jazz liturgy from time to time. Mm -hmm. And so uh, keyboardists like Wayne Hawkins when Wayne was in town and, and now Paul Roberts, I mean, they have unique really skills that, that work into that, that sort of a setting, whereas I might not call them on a straight classical gig mm -hmm. type of thing. Um, or, you know, I, they have specific skill sets that work in that context mm -hmm. very well. Now, um, you know, there's also a lot of guys who, who are just superb all around it. I mean, John Curry's a great example, yeah, again, sure. someone who's very classically gifted, but also plays in multiple styles that require improvisational skills, mm -hmm. too. So. Yeah, that, that's, I mean, I know, you know, Wayne is out of control. I mean, I don't think he's <laughs> in town anymore, but yeah. yeah, he is a phenomenal. He's a monster. And player. yeah, and so is Paul Roberts. Right. And uh, that's really cool that you're able to get those quality of players at the at at atonement yeah, and they really shine with you know their unique skill sets in that mm -hmm. kind of setting yeah 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 um yeah so i mean i know that uh, that you do the the music now here at church but uh tell tell everybody a two or three uh, whatever minute you know 
summary of some stuff that you did before that because I know that's your kind of big gig right now but uh, sure um, yeah I, I don't know how far back you want to go well, yeah <laughs> uh, yeah I mean I'm sort of a product uh, from high school on of the Kansas City area mm -hmm. uh, graduated from Shawnee Mission South and then went out to San Diego to school South, for a couple of that's years right. <laughs> uh, and then finished up my degree at UMKC uh, and really have benefited from my association with UMKC, continue to um, draw um, both students and faculty from, from UMKC in my current position. Mm -hmm. You know, for example, our choir director now, Dr. Ray Feener, is a, one of the vocal profs down there. Mm -hmm. And we also have section leaders in our choir who are students down there. So that association continues to be really fruitful. Um, They're really strong, aren't they? They really UMKC are. UMKC has yeah, been, been strong for... And my major there was uh, composition, you know, although I studied organ there also. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, they've got a, just an, a world-renowned composition faculty mm -hmm. there, Chen Yi and Paul Rudy and mm -hmm. Ju Long and the other folks there. So, yeah. That's cool. Um, yeah, so after doing the school thing, I uh, played in bands around town for mm -hmm. a while. Had some regional uh, success. Warmed up for BB King and um, Steppenwolf, Man, oh, wow. uh, Robin Trower, Johnny Winter, several you know that's cool people I admired growing up. Sure. You know, to to get to warm up for them at places like Starlight in the Uptown was really rewarding. That's cool. So, so like, what kind of bands were those then? Those like uh, the, the main one were, were uh, blues rock mm -hmm. trio, many mainly power trios. Yeah, trios. Yeah, yeah. yeah. that's cool. So, and you were playing keyboard for that? Uh, keyboards and bass. And bass. Cool. Yeah, I, I, it was kind of unique because we wanted to keep it in the power, power trio, so there were some tunes where you know, you'd know you want to play bass on that, mm -hmm. uh, but then others where you really had to have the keys in there for the, so the guitar player could get outside a little more. And, uh, so you'd so, do bass so on I, the so left I, hand, Actually, right? I had pedal bass. I had mode, uh -huh. mode pedals, so, so yeah. So that, that's that's crazy. crazy. Like, yeah, yeah, it was, but uh, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, I want to I want to talk about Oregon stuff here in a minute because that that pedal, the foot pedals, like you know, that's a whole other world for me. But uh, you you were talking before we started about being in the publishing business. I wanted you to elaborate a little bit on sure what that means. Uh, yeah, um, in the early '90s, I started working for Tempo Music, which was a locally based company. Dr. Jesse Peterson, who was the head of that, uh, was also a UMKC grad from back in the 60s. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was involved in sort of the early beginnings of the contemporary Christian music industry. Mm -hmm. And so knew a lot of the players who actually began that industry in the late 60s and early 70s. And, uh, but was also hooked up with uh, in, uh, the American Institute of Musicology. So he had this sort of feet in multiple pools also mm -hmm. so he was uh, publishing contemporary Christian he was also publishing music for choirs also publishing um, really high-end scholarly stuff through the American Institute of Musicology mm -hmm. and uh, so and also started back in the dark days of DOS uh, <laughs> early uh, computer software for musicians oh, geez. So That's, uh, they cool. were the first finale dealer in town oh, for wow. example yeah. and but also developed their own software specifically for worship planning and mm -hmm. that sort of thing, music administration. So I got to travel all over the country doing trade shows at uh, church music conferences. And that oh, sort okay. Of so and then so for the idiots watching, including myself, like so so you're 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 dealing like you're talking about like sheet music, right? Or, or what? Like explain what that means of the publishing. Sure, sure. And, and uh, you have to realize also that the entire industry has changed in that regard. Obviously, with mm -hmm. the advent of the internet, mm -hmm. um, so um, so yeah, it was sheet music to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, I had before I even got to tempo, I'd already had a couple books of my organ music published by uh, Lil and his publishing company, who's who was a publisher here in town mm -hmm. for many years, mm -hmm. and uh, and then I had some other stuff published by Morningstar out of St. Louis. That, that you wrote? Yeah, that I yeah, wrote, yeah. That's yeah. cool, So, man. so yeah. outside publisher. So I had yeah. some background there already yeah. in that sort of business, but uh, I had not had any experience in sort of the contemporary Christian music industry, mm -hmm. which was uh, kind of interesting to get to know. And, uh, and Jesse had a lot of insights into that because 
I mean, he was there at the beginning. He, mm-hmm. he knew a lot of the players. So that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I know, like, I know this happens, and I'm sure this happens with kind of choirs in general too. Is that in orchestra, they'll be at like the middle school level or the high school level, and even though when you when you get into like when you get when you get into finding songs that are like violin concerto type stuff, there's quite a few of them. You know, there's pretty pretty large four hundred year old catalog, and and maybe choirs even now. There's you know there's a 600 year catalog but when you get into like viola repertoire it's you know now we're down to like 37 pieces that are like really college level and then when you get into like orchestras there there's a lot of good stuff but it's all that kind of barely college level repertoire and then when you have this high school that can handle some okay stuff they just barely can't handle this and i'm sure that when you get into different kind of genres of stuff, when you're getting into like choir, I know everybody is always looking for more pieces, you know, that are that are like bluesy or that are gospel and they're written out for everybody, you know. Right. So like, like what other people don't understand is when the teacher goes into that big catalog and they're, you know, looking through all these songs, you know, they were always looking for the more songs because you have your standards and stuff and what so what was the some of the stuff that you wrote like for which kind of groups or like sure um the stuff that i had written initially was uh for organ so for other organists mm-hmm. and was primarily hymn based um so mm-hmm. hymns that are uh, sung across denominational lines you know whether you're lutheran presbyterian episcopalian mm-hmm. whatever you know these tend to be used by organists everywhere and uh, so there was a you know sort of built-in market for that kind of thing. And I really wrote those out of my own needs, you know, as a music director and organist mm-hmm. in, in whatever church I was at at yeah. the time. Um, but then you know when you get to the choir level, um, what you've just said is is correct. Um, they're looking for things by difficulty. So I mean, for mm-hmm. if you've got a, a pickup choir who can't really read music that well, you're not going to pick some really no. high-end classical literature with you know split parts and stuff mm-hmm. so um so you have to gauge it to the difficulty uh, also to you know what i've always tried to do wherever i am is find out where the people are that i'm working with first you know yeah. sort of get a sense of what their strengths and weaknesses are and try and stretch them a little bit at both ends yeah. i mean sure find pieces that fit them well and show them off well but also stretch their abilities and their tastes a little bit too mm-hmm. yeah so they grow you know mm-hmm. because that's part of what it's all about too Oh yeah, 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 and the taste is a w- that that's something I definitely know that is happening in the orchestras right now is that we we know in our head that you know best is a stupid word, but we know that you know classical is the 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 key. You know, I mean, you want them to get to that point where they can do the Brandenburg concertos and the you know these good level pieces, but we also know to, to keep their engagement. You know, you you do the the grease medley you know and then you know these other like rock tunes that are arranged and aladdin you know or whatever your thing is that you're trying to do and and i know that uh jane did that with us a lot jane andrews where she would find these pieces but she would try to find these kind of more more gospel style pieces than the hymn type pieces and try to expand us um have you ever had a a time where you were trying to get a choir to do like a a very kind of bluesy or or some kind of different style and they, they just weren't having it have you ever had that or oh absolutely yeah. you know there are things that are just totally out of some some folks comfort zones mm-hmm. and uh, when you find that that's the case then you know you maybe put that aside for another season or something until you've been able to sort of stretch or lead them to you know appreciate that oh yeah yeah, yeah. and it may be that um certain styles may not be appropriate for a given situation either too i mean you just right. have to be sensitive to where your, your people are so you're right and i guess maybe sensitive to your church too right oh, absolutely yeah. yeah yeah definitely <laughs> you come in with the come in with this song that is you know straight out of uh straight out of Ray Charles or something and everybody's not really ready to hear the, you know, 
I don't know. I like Ray. <laughs> I love it. I love him too. But you know, this this sure. this eighty year old you no, know congregation you know is not quite ready to hear the blues in there. Yeah, you know, I think that all that stuff is really funny. Uh, so so I guess last question on on publishing because I'm I'm really curious about that because I really know nothing about it, um, but like a lot of us in the band world complain quite a bit about like BMI and uh, ASCAP. ASCAP yeah yeah and so on the on the on the publishing side take take everybody for like a minute into that process of, of you I mean you've got to actually like send it in to, or you've got to write it obviously and then send it in like tell people about how that works sure um, it depends on sort of your ultimate goal for the distribution of it uh, if you're selling it to a publisher then the publisher will will want those rights um, so for example they're gonna buy the rights uh, to be able to print the music for example okay and in general and this is a really I mean in general terms <laughs> um, the arranger or composer is going to get between 10 and 12 percent of whatever the copy price is for that um, now ouch, ouch. No, yeah, yeah, I'm well, just kidding. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah but yeah. but that's a traditional printed music approach you'll get a lot well not a lot more but you'll get more if it's a pure internet distribution where mm. the publisher isn't having to shell out for actually printing and stocking mm. stuff in stores mm. and all of that kind of thing. Uh, and as I said a few moments ago, I mean, the entire distribution model has changed now. So, um, mm. so you know, the percentages that I just mentioned will, de will definitely change depending on the context right. and upon the market too. Yeah. So, I mean, it used to be that there were tons of music stores everywhere it used to be that there were lots of music distributors who the publishers would send their music to and then in turn they'd send it to the stores. Well, a lot of those middlemen have been cut out now. So, mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of it is direct to customer yeah, from yeah. the publishers direct. And so, while that may save on overhead and that kind of thing, um, you know, it's still a, a tough market to, to get around it. Right. Um, now, that's separate and apart from other... Um, parts of the publishing equation, um, such as the performing rights, uh, which mm, you've just mentioned, right. which ASCAP and BMI uh, control, depending on who you choose to associate with or who mm -hmm. the publisher is associated with. And they're the ones who are, you know, uh, checking to see how many times it's played on Spotify, right, for example, right. or radio, mm -hmm. if you're lucky enough, or, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and then even beyond that, if you're lucky enough to have your piece um, synchronized, in other words, put with video, mm. that again is a whole other a whole kettle. Other thing, and, and yeah. uh, you know, the, the price is very so widely with synchronization. Mm. It's basically whatever deal you can work with whoever's doing the video. Right. You know, yeah. so. I think, like, you're making a good point in that, you know, obviously not trying to go into go into you know, politics or anything, but I think people don't understand that 12% number that you're talking about. Like, and that happens a lot with like album sales where we look at Steven Tyler or any of these, you know, Justin Bieber, or any of these people. And we don't understand that like they're, you know, we think they're millionaires and they are, but you know, we don't understand that like Columbia, like owns the, you know, I mean, they, that's a silly word, but they, they really are his name, you know, and he's just the one do it. He's just the one performing, but he didn't really write his own songs. You know, he didn't, re he's not doing any advertising that somebody's doing that all for him. And on the <laughs> publishing side, you know, it's the same thing where you, you put out your, your product of your piece, but I mean, it's exactly like working at a shop for lessons, you know, I mean, you come in and teach, but other than that, you ain't doing anything. You know, they did all the advertising. They did all the, you know, the, the shop's doing everything for you. And so everybody kind of thinks about that 12% number and they're like, oh man, we're getting jacked like crazy. Well, you know, you did a lot of work with printing it, but you know, yeah. all the rest of this stuff, you're not really, you know, the person isn't really doing anything. So, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of people politically don't understand that idea of, of the percentages of what actually is really going on. And like, you know, it's kind of a tangent, but like. I think really understanding the economics part of that is, yeah. is... Yeah, I mean, there's everyone needs a margin. Everyone needs to make something on that product. So while the composer's making maybe 10%, and that seems low to the composer, and believe me, it does seem low. <laughs> uh, on the other hand, you have to think about the publisher who's um, 
you know, taken that, printed it on paper, put a cover on it, paid an artist to design the cover, right. um, and they're giving that to a distributor or a dealer who's maybe paying 50%, maybe, of, mm -hmm. the, of the cover price. Right. So, I mean, the publisher right there is down to, you know, maybe 30% or, right. or something on, on that for all the promotion and right. the artist and tracking the royalties and mailing out the statements and the office mm -hmm. overhead and all of that. So, yeah. I mean, you know, it, you're right, there's a lot of cuts. <laughs> yeah, and, and you just made another point that I think a lot of people don't want to think about is, this publisher or the people that run Justin Bieber or whatever, look at how much capital they're throwing up front. You know, like you just said, I mean, they're throwing up, you know, whatever, at least $6 a piece or something, you know, they're, they're, of all the stuff that they just did. And they just spent $6 on every piece of paper that we put out. Yeah. And now that's why they charge 15, 12, you know, whatever their price is. And yeah. so it seems unfair, but look, I know in a band world, we always think about that of it all, we always see it one-sided from the, the musician's point of view and we never look from the, the bar owner point of view and that's yeah, the same right. kind of concept where exactly. we think we're always getting jacked but it, we kind of got to see a bigger picture you know yeah exactly right yeah um, that's cool man um, so the so obviously like you said you you did a lot of stuff with the publishing business um, but one thing that I've noticed, um, obviously about you and others in town, um, are, especially in the band world, some people kind of stick with piano and don't do organ or they do both or, and especially some guys in the jazz business aren't very good at doing like running, walking bass, like, like really good, you know, at high end, you know, and, uh, so tell me a little bit of the differences between, or challenges or better or whatever you want to say about playing piano and then playing like organ well I mean the the most apparent difference to the casual observer is that with the organ you use your feet mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <Have fun. laughs> and uh, um, you know a lot of times that's to play a bass line but uh, that's also sort of a typecast thing that if your feet are moving on the pedals you're uh, you're supposedly playing the bass line it's not always true because the organ uh, is somewhat unique in that whenever you press a key, it's totally dependent on the stops that you have drawn at, at any given time. Mm. So, so whereas um, if you press a key, middle C on an organ keyboard and you have what's called an eight foot stop on, you're going to get the same pitch that you get on a piano when you press middle C on a piano. Okay. If you press middle C on an organ keyboard and you have a four foot stop on, in other words, the pipes are half the length of the eight foot stops, oh. it's going to be an octave higher. Oh, okay. And so you can actually play melodies with your feet at four foot pitch and be playing it at a lower pitch on the keyboard. And so you're actually playing melodies with your feet that are sounding. It's a it's a real oh, mind that, wow that's crazy mind yeah. game yeah so <laughs> so you're doing so you can you could do octaves if you want but sure. but you could also do unison I guess oh, yeah. is what you're saying right. with the, with right. the feet and the wow yeah yeah yeah, yeah so, so people don't so that's see that. the most apparent difference yeah uh, also you know organs may have anywhere from one to five keyboards plus the pedals <laughs> any number of stops from one to hundreds yeah wow. whereas a piano you you're pretty much sure you're gonna have 88 keys and each one of them plays a note right? yeah right right yeah whereas the organ uh, again going back to talking about the fact that you press a key and and it depends on the stops mm -hmm. um, you can have anywhere from one stop on to all the stops on so you're playing mm -hmm. at multiple octaves and layers of pitch just with one finger on one key <laughs> And, and I compare that, the, sort of the mixing of the stops to kind of like an artist's palette where you've got different colors on a palette mm -hmm. and you're selecting, you know, maybe a little bit of red and a little bit of green and a little bit of blue mm -hmm. and you mix, mix it up, you know, yeah. similar to drawing the stops on an organ, you're looking for tone colors. Mm -hmm. So you may have a string stop and maybe a, what's called a principal stop on an organ, which is sort mm -hmm. of the basis of organ tone. And you can mix, mix that to get new tone colors that aren't otherwise available. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas the piano, you know, you're you're gonna get the piano sound. Yeah, and the, yeah, and the, I mean, you can you can you can adjust it. You know, playing piano, obviously, you can get kind oh, of sure. a more pingy sound. You can yeah. get a much more uh, 
mellow, you know, depending on how you're hitting it or whatever. But I know I was watching, uh, I don't know if you know Modesky Martin Wood. I don't know if you, yeah. So, so I was watching him and, you know, I mean, there's all these white little side and he's going nuts, right? I mean, he's, you know, pulling them out and pushing them back and pulling them out. I mean, as he's going and I mean, he's going crazy, you know, and like, and I mean, I guess it's just like anything. I mean, you're, you're now kind of memorizing where all these things are and which one does what and whatever. And, uh, and that, that was just crazy to watch him because, I mean, he's got, you know, I mean, he's got a regular piano here. He's got yeah. his thing here. Then he's got his keyboard with, you know, God knows what over here, you know, and it, it's not even a Rhodes. It's, I don't know what it is, you know, and, sure. and then he is. And I'm sure on the other side, he probably had his regular key, his regular, like, killer Yamaha or something with sure. Rhodes and all these other, you know, yeah. a vibraphone or whatever. And, uh, and like, that was, that just blew my mind on how he could remember all of those stops where yeah. those are because it's like a whole nother yeah a good friend of mine who uh, plays here in town ken lovern uh, oh yeah he's yeah. really good at uh at sort of the jazz organ he has a mm-hmm. jazz organ trio yeah sure uh, but he's, a also, he's, he's a, he's a big right. fan of modesky martin and wood mm-hmm. too and so he you know does has nights down the green lady where he'll do only modesky yeah, martin yeah, that's things, awesome so. yeah ken's a great guy yeah, they're they're a great band. I mean, John Radeski's a killer. They're they're all three yeah. awesome. But I like it when John Schofield's with them. Yeah, yeah. The they got the four piece. Yeah, that was a great album. Their first album they did with him was awesome. Uh, he was a perfect fit. Um, so like, and then I saw one. I saw pictures the other day, and and I texted back. That's the most necessary thing I've ever seen. I mean, it was this ridiculous organ. I mean, there were seven keyboards or something. I mean, it was oh, just sure. like, yeah. I don't know if you saw that on Facebook, but it yeah. was, I was it, like, that's the organ at the, uh, uh, convention hall in Atlantic city, New Jersey. Yeah, okay. And it's been undergoing restoration for many, many years. They've got, uh, probably most of it playable now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, it's sort of unique characteristic is it's one of the only organs in the world with a 64 foot stop. Which means oh. low C is 64 feet tall. <laughs> I mean, that's down, you know, almost at the range of, you know, you can't hear it anymore. You yeah. just feel it. Yeah, know? yeah, so, that's funny. Yeah. yeah. And so speaking of organs, I know that, uh, and I guess I don't really know how, how good this one is in regards to how organs are, but it seems like the one they have in Atonement is pretty nice, it right? Really I mean, it, yeah. how is that to get to play on it? Oh, it's week? wonderful. It's an incredible instrument, yeah. And organs are built in different styles, too. Mm-hmm. The one in Atonement uh, is what's called mechanical action, <clears throat> meaning that there's a direct linkage between the key on the keyboard and uh, the valve underneath the pipe. So it's not electric. It's not electrically hooked up to the uh, pipes at all. There's a, an actual little wire and then dowel rods that run way up in, into the instrument so that when you push a key down, you're actually physically pulling down the valve underneath the pipe. Uh, so it's mechanical action as opposed to um, electri- electrical action in which, you know, when you push a key down, it's just like an electronic keyboard. Yeah. It's just a switch. Right? Okay, so that's And that pulls it, you know, so, so that's one distinguishing thing. The other is the style it's built in. It's North German. Okay. Um, so if Bach sat down at the organ at Atonement, he'd know right away what to do. Mm. It's in the style that Bach would have been familiar style, with. Yeah. yeah. Uh, whereas um, there are many national styles of organ building, um, and uh, America has a lot of what I would call Romantic era instruments mm-hmm. from, let's say, the late 1800s to the mm. mid 20th century, let's say, um, which have lots of um, eight foot stops which means lots of unison sound very lush sound mm-hmm. lots of string stops mm-hmm. you know trying to approximate again sure, yeah. that, that lush romantic kind of sound that Brahms would have right like and then the other style would be obviously more kind of baroque classical kind of style with the north yeah, german yeah the, the is north german is that. is you know sort of in the um, in the baroque style i mean it, it's right. got some some editions, some French editions actually, uh-huh. which allow uh-huh. it to do French music pretty well too. Oh, uh, wow. Uh, I know, and then when I hear, so now when you go to like clubs, play, when they hear the jazz guys use the organ, you know, there's there's a lot of crazy sound effects they can do. They can use, you know, vibraphone and Rhodes and, and then jazz organ and regular kind of church sounding organ and definitely the, the, 
the sounds I think is really nuts because they, and then they flip back to regular piano and they have this huge ridiculous palette of stuff and to me the the obvious difference to me is the sustain you know I mean compared piano and organ yeah, I mean you, blah, and you're just I mean you can sustain It'll sustain that for, forever forever yeah. if you leave your hand down and so like yeah that Stravinsky calls it the beast that never breathes yeah yeah right <laughs> so, yeah 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 and that's a funny thing because we're we're similar to that where we can just go forever. We never have to right. take a breath, yeah. like singers or horn players. And well, and the other unique thing is, you know, if you're talking about pipe organs too, just the method by which they produce sound. In other words, a column of air in a pipe is just like the human voice works. Mm -hmm. So we're basically a column of air through our mm -hmm. you know windpipe, and so the pipe organ. Um, to many people's opinion, is the best thing for supporting human singing mm. because it produces uh, sound in the same way. Mm. And, yeah. uh, and so, you know, there's probably nothing more um, capable, in my opinion, of supporting a large body of sound uh, of congregational singing than an organ. Um, because, when, if, for example, if you're trying to lead, you know, 800 to 1,000 people with a piano, you pretty much have to have amplification or something to oh, be able to oh, do yeah, that. Yeah. And, you know, you're, again, dealing with sound that only sustains, you know, if you've got the sustain pedal down or whatever that means. And it's more percussive than it is sustaining. Right. Uh, where the pipe organ can easily fill, <coughs> fill a room and support sound oh, yeah. and go all the way from pianissimo all the way to fortissimo. Yeah. And, you know, that, yeah, very that, flexible. Yeah, think. that would be totally different, and, and I run into that with my violin. Obviously, I mean, you—if you, you're with any band, I mean, you're you're never gonna last. I mean, you have yeah. to get an amp or something. Oh, it's sure. just just playing that loud enough. Yeah. And like, so going. So last question on that. So going, I would think that going back and forth, like like so. For example, let's say you had like a week where you have two piano gigs or something, and then two organ gigs. I would feel that that would, maybe if you got used to playing them, it wouldn't, but, but the sustain part and the idea of, of the style kind of in which you're playing, is that hard to go back and forth or not really when you get used to um, it? Yeah, it's hard for me to, to, do, to say that because I've been doing it for so long yeah. that, I mean, I go back and forth between piano and synth and pipe organ all within the same service, right. you know, so all within the same gig, so... So yeah, I mean, each one has its strengths and weaknesses for different applications, and I just try to use each one in its, you know, best context. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, so let's see here. So with playing all that piano and the organ and stuff, I know that you've accompanied a lot of people over, and I know I've played at Atonement with you before, and you know, you came out with the piano, and we we did a. Um, what are what are some? I, I don't know if they're funny, but what are some some things that you have found accompanying people that are just interesting or or fun or challenging or however you want to answer that? Sure. Um, well, to my mind, the accompanist is there to support the soloist first of all. Um, so I try to sense the soloist give and take. You know, particularly if it's a a period piece where there's lots of rubato obviously mm. the soloist is going to be leading in that mm. uh, if the soloist is uh, not so self-assured as they might otherwise be um, I try I try to get them comfortable with the context in which you know they're doing this and I, I try to say now I'm here to support you uh, if you happen to get lost or if you get too far ahead or behind wait for me to find you and don't mm. try and find me I'm there to support you so I'm I'm kind of letting them know that they're the driver in this situation yeah I'm there to provide the support and that's kind of my role yeah uh, now that said um, you know there, there are times for example at Atonement we have pianos at the front and the back of the room you know mm. up in the loft and down front right. so when you've got a soloist who hasn't done it very much I give them the option to say, now we can do it up in the up in the loft so that you don't have to face people while you're playing or singing <laughs> you're you right. know, for your first sure. time out kind sure. of thing. And, and that makes them more comfortable. And, you know, then next time maybe we can get them down front and kind of, you know, ease them into mm -hmm. this. Uh, what, everybody's sitting there like this? <laughs> 
beady eyes stared at you about 800, right? right? <laughs> so so you, you said something interesting there. So like, so when you're accompanying, there's kind of, when I talk to my students, I talk about kind of the parts of music, right? You have kind of your pitch and your rhythm and then your tone and your dynamics and stuff. So like, so first of all, like being specific on kind of the rhythm stuff, you kind of hit on it how sometimes you, especially on rubato type moments, you're going to let them right. do the rubato and I'm, I'm literally following, not the other way around. Right, right. Right? And, and to some extent it depends on the unique context of the piece you're playing too, where mm -hmm. the person with the, move, the fastest moving notes generally is going to control the tempo. Mm -hmm. You know, and particularly at cadence points, that tends to be particularly right. true. Because uh, you're going to have a lot of rubatos or some rubatos, right? And, those, and, and uh, their part and the and the tempo at which they take the, that particular passage of of uh, fast moving notes is going to control what you do behind them. Mm -hmm. Now, if I've got the fast moving notes, then obviously you know I've got to work with them and keep them on track with me. Yeah. Uh, yeah so yeah. there there's a lot of give and take between soloist and accompanist. I would say even though you know the accompanist is the uh, supporting role. Sure. Oh yeah, and and that that's and, and I'm kind of mentioning that in regards to bands too, where I think when we talk about like the the rhythm section and then the like singer or soloist or whatever, and there's a lot of argument about people with drummers, how you know are they really leading the rhythm or is it really the bass or is it really the singer and they're supposed to back up the singer follow him to the ends of the earth if he slows down or speeds up or is is everybody supposed to use the drummer as, as the big old crutch you know and make him really drive the rhythm or is he embellishing the beat and helping the beat go along is he you know and that that's always an argument that i've had with you know or a good discussion that i've had because i've had, i've heard a lot of people talk about like in a band setting the bass player is really the center of every, that, that's what like uh, Dave Holland would say, you know, as a jazz guy, he's like, I'm the center. And then uh, Jack Dejanet, you know, comes on, he goes, yeah, I'm not the center. You know, I mean, <laughs> they, they agree on that sense. He's like, I'm supposed to be helping this thing. I'm not, they're not supposed to be following me. I'm following them. Yeah, and, 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 and some of that's dependent on the style too. I mean, I, I would argue that in a context like, uh, Led Zeppelin, for example, John Paul Jones and John Bonham are locked in like this, yeah. and everything else is built on that foundation. Right. So I'm not sure you could say that you know John Paul Jones is like the center of the thing. Yeah. I think it's it's you know it's both definitely yeah, yeah, both. Yeah, yeah, that's and and so with accompanying, like obviously, like professionally, I've played with you know people like you, and when I'm actually playing a gig, but then when I go to my students, like. Uh, um, contests or whatever see, and then now that's kind of a whole different situation because they're a student and they're playing with a professional pianist and so that's a moment where I'm not sure sometimes as a teacher you, we might be like a week before the performance and now I've got to make a decision I'm like of, of in regards to what I tell the accompanist you know I'm like well, you know, his rhythm is, you know, ridiculously suspect right now, you know, so, so like, do you, do I, do I tell the companist, right. okay, you, you basically plow ahead and keep his butt in line, you know, or do I let the, especially when it's like, like the Bach double that we played where there is no rubato, it's just straight right. through. Yeah. I, sometimes I don't know which to do right there as a teacher if I want to make the student or make the accompanist follow them or if I want the accompanist to dung, 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 you know, like and make the student yeah. actually have good rhythm now today, you know, because he's uh, getting the solid, sure. you know, I, don't, I guess, you know. Well, I don't, students learn so much, I think, from playing with different accompanists because each accompanist is going to handle the score a little bit differently. And so I think there's there's value in uh, sort of branching out and playing with different accompanists instead of just you know like locking into your favorite person who's accompanied you since AJ. Yeah, right. So. Yeah, yeah. And then and then one more question on accompanist. Uh, I know because that was specifically kind of rhythm we were talking about. And now when you get on over into the all of the other stuff like the touch and the dynamics and the and the kind of style and stuff. Um, 
I guess you've sort of kind of answered this, but maybe on that, you're going to definitely like follow them or how, how are you going to deal yeah, with definitely. that? You're, you're, you're definitely um, playing a supporting role there and letting the soloist shine. Uh, you know, so, I mean, you don't want to overpower them. Um, you want to um, definitely be sensitive, like particularly with vocal soloists. Um, you have people who have a rather small vocal sound. I mean, you're not gonna, you know, pound fortis fortissimo right. in the music, even though it says that in the yeah. score. You know, whereas someone with a really big voice, I mean, sure, knock yourself out. Mm -hmm. you know? So you have to be sensitive to the unique uh, strengths and weaknesses of whoever the soloist is and whether they're vocal, instrumental, or whatever. Yeah, I know that it, it always blows me away when we were at uh, Wichita State and we'd have some, some uh, vocalists come in and play with the orchestra and this dude's like blasting over the whole orchestra and he's like one guy and we're like massive i mean our sound is huge and he's just like and he's in front you know he's in front of the front of the orchestra but i'm like holy crap this guy or the girls too you know i mean they're 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 towering over us and we're at straight up fortissimo and they're and yeah. and that that's just nuts so i can i can imagine like judging as just a pianist with somebody like that on how to where to put yourself would be tricky i would think it can be yeah and so you've just got to through experience develop ears and sensitivity to mm -hmm. that kind of thing yeah 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 um so i, I got a i got a couple more for you here um so i've wanted to have this show about the kind of helpful hints for people and um, for piano players in general, we talked a little bit about accompanying. Is there, is there any other kind of specifically piano advice that you would, you would give to like a 20-year-old or somebody who's, a, who's getting into this kind of professional world? Um, yeah. Um, branch out and be as versatile as you possibly mm -hmm. can. Mm -hmm. uh, try to familiarize yourself with styles that you're not necessarily comfortable with. And that will mm -hmm. stretch you as a person and as a musician. Uh, go out and listen to other people doing it. You know, I mean, if you're having problems sort of getting into a certain style, then uh, find people who do it well. Mm. Go out and listen and uh, see what they're doing. Um, I mean, particularly now, there are just so many genres and subgenres out there. Mm. I mean, so many pigeonholes that people like to mm. tack onto styles and so forth um, that uh, sky's the limit, really. Oh, yeah. So... Um, you know, wh what I would say on the piano is, um, for example, in a university style education as a keyboardist, because organ was my primary instrument, mm -hmm. um, I got to bypass a lot of the piano proficiency class stuff mm -hmm. that everyone else had to take, yeah. you know, yeah. right? So yeah. I mean, you're familiar with that. Um, but you, you mean playing like one? And <laughs> four, four part, you know, four part right. chorales, you know, two, right. and. But, but part of piano proficiency involved things like learning how to play in what's quote unquote assembly style to where you're, you're, um, you're playing sort of the Scott Joplin style where you're all over the keyboard all mm. the time to try and fill space. Kind of like um, uh, if you've played in a power trio format. You know that if you're just playing with the bass, drums, and, and uh, guitar, um, you got to fill a lot of space on each one of those instruments just to fill the sonic spectrum. Right. On piano, it's just you. Yeah. And so you know, learning how to play an assembly style—if you're having to lead like a, a gymnasium full of students and mm -hmm. singing the school fight song or whatever—you yeah. know—that's one set of skills which you're not going to learn by playing Bach two-part inventions. You know. Mm, so, yeah. So being familiar with all these sort of different styles um, is going to do you do you well. Oh yeah, I know. I heard one guy. He was. It was like. It was like a jazz combo, and they were playing to a thousand fourth graders or something, you know, like like down at uh, gem theaters. It was that kind of a thing. And he was trying to tell this kid, and there were some other kid, high school kids that came up. It was kind of a clinic. And he was, the guy looked at him and he goes, he, and his point was basically that you don't play piano here, you play it here. And he moved both his hands up an octave. And I think he was specifically meaning like comping. I, th I think that's kind of what he was implying. And, 
and I was curious why he was doing that. But I think later he was talking about that you're fighting against all the against the base and like, and and that's maybe what you're talking about about where you need to be literally on the keyboard in yeah. different scenarios. Yeah, yeah, true. For example, if I'm playing uh, piano in the band with a bass player, uh, Forrest Stewart is the bass player in the band at church right now, um, then I'm going to shift much more to everything sort of from here on up, which is the octave below middle C on right. up. And I'm not going to get any further down than that because Forrest has that covered already. Yeah. And you know, particularly down the bass register, that can get really muddy if mm -hmm. you've got sort of conflicting things going on down there. It's already so, muddy. <laughs> right. And, yeah. and, and as you probably know from having done uh, mixing on CDs and that kind of thing, mm -hmm. um, there tends to be sort of a uh, a middle mush also. Mm -hmm. You got the guitar player in the mm -hmm. middle, you got the keyboard player in the middle, sometimes you've got wind instruments in the middle, whatever that is. So, so um, I had a keyboard player that told me years ago, comp sparsely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, and that's good advice. I think. Uh, it's you very know, good advice. Get out of the way. You know, you don't have to play all the time. Sometimes playing the rest is the best thing you can do. Oh, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. How many of us forget that? Yeah, exactly. Like every four seconds, we forget to stop playing. Yeah, the, the rest are just as important as the uh, mm -hmm. notes. Uh, yeah, and that's that's a good point because I noticed that when I did my album, where I had a keyboard and a guitar, and then they they were both right in that spot, and so like, and a lot of people told me this where at that point you have to go rhythmic with them, like like in 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 the sense of like. Like an, an example would be let the keyboard player do the chords and make the guitar do like single note line kind of stuff sure. so it cuts through, right? Yeah, or, or play the holes is what I've heard right. too. Uh, I work with uh, James Isaac, the sax player. Yeah, I know James. And, yeah. uh, and James is great about finding that place where the singer has maybe held a long note at the end of the phrase and so that's his opportunity to yeah. get in there and play without playing over the singer. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah, I mean, country and blues are yeah. set up for that. Exactly. You have a nice big yep. space there, you know, where they're either tapering their note out or they're not singing at all. Yeah. Yep. And I think a lot of people don't do that. They're, they're, there's that really high level musician that understands that very well. And then the guys right under them, you know, they've got good rhythm. They've got good touch. But that's the thing they're missing is the understanding the when part, you know, yeah. when do I yeah. need to put and and not just the dynamic wise, but, but like literally what do I play in regards to when, you know, and, and knowing what kind of riff do I need to put in here. Right. And that's it's, just stylistic familiarity, really. Yeah. You know, knowing what works in this style in this context. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I mean, that applies, um, you know, with the organ too, for example. Um, organs are built as I mentioned a few moments ago, each one's unique. You know, you can have anywhere from five to one keyboard, a million stops right. on each one, and that sort of thing. But uh, they're really uh, built for the room. <coughs> so, uh, whereas your violin has a soundboard, which yeah. produces a sound, mm -hmm. the organ soundboard is the room it's in. That, mm. that is its room, that is, that's its source of resonance. And so, if, you, if you're in a really dry room with lots of carpet, you're going to play the organ differently than you are if you've got eight yeah. seconds of reverb after the right. organ. So, I mean, it's, I mean you're totally got to adjust yeah, yeah. that. So, you know, um, I played out at the uh, the Community of Christ Temple in Independence, mm. you know, the one with the spiral mm. ceiling. Um, and uh, it's got eight seconds of reverb. <laughs> and if, you, if I were to play the pedals there, just like I do at Atonement, which has maybe three or four seconds, um, you know, it, it'd just get lost. Oh, yeah. Uh, because you have all that reverb and you've got bass notes fighting each other just because the last one hasn't died yet. Yeah, you know, yeah, while you're pressing right. the next one. So, yeah. You have to adjust for the room you're in. Right. And, and you know that from, from bands, too. Sure. I mean, you adjust for the room. Maybe it's an outdoor gig and, it, and it just loses it. It just yeah, goes yeah, everywhere. Yeah. You know? So, you have to adjust for that. That's too. interesting that you said that my sound box is this big well your sound box is like the I room. Got a room yeah that, that's a crazy thing to think about that we don't that we i think a lot of a lot of average musicians go into a room and they just they just play and they don't consider to 
to play to the room, sort of, and, yeah. and that's just a different thing. Um, that last thing on that that you said that was really interesting about going and listening, um, I've I've found, and this is this is showing how much that I've enjoyed playing the kind of non-classical stuff, is that in the university and stuff, obviously we all have our our things that we're really good at and things that we're, you know, less at, but we all basically get trained, you know, pretty much the same. The training is the same. We're not all the you know, we're not all the exact same player when we get out. But I've noticed definitely when you get into jazz, everybody is all over the place. I mean, these guy this guy has really average like soloing ideas, but his tone is like just buttery and awesome or this guy is like super in the pocket. And then this guy has got terrible technique, but he has the most crazy, cool ideas, you know, like, so, like, and I thought that was interesting and, and really good that you said that go listen to a lot of other people because I think in classical, we think like, well, I've heard 16 different violinists play Bach double, you know, or, or, or the Toccata and Fugue, you know, and I'm like, you know, yeah, I've pretty much heard it pretty much in every way you can. But when you get over in jazz, it's absolutely endless, right? Sure. Or even rock or whatever. Sure. Like, Yeah, any improvisational style is going to lend itself to uh, a variety of expressions. And I think we're finding, even in the classical world, um, that um, the teaching of improvisation in classical styles is really um, getting stronger now. Good, yeah. Uh, for example, Bach, who is basically the god of all organists, mm -hmm. because he was an organist too, mm -hmm. um, he was an improviser. Uh -huh. And and uh, improvising in Baroque styles was uh, expected, just as much as reading notes off a page, <coughs> and uh, that's really made a, a strong comeback, particularly um, in the 20th and 21st century mm -hmm. now. Um, so, for example, you could go to France or any of the organ schools in the U.S. and find uh, improvisation in classical styles being taught now too. That's great. It is, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not just the purview of rock players or jazz players. Mm. Uh, you know, it's really making a comeback now. And you know, from having played uh, music with improvised cadenzas in, in written right. music, I right. mean, that that's an improv thing too. I mean, yeah. Beethoven would have improvised his cadenzas, right. you know, when he was playing piano. Yeah, and that I was about ready to say that because uh, one of my buddies, he he was really lucky in high school. His teacher made him. You know, he's like, you're gonna you're gonna play the stuff in this piece, and they kind of leave it at that. You know, use the riffs in this piece. They do the da 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 da. -da, -da, -da you know, use that in your cadenza sure. on a different note or something. You know, and uh, yeah, it's it's learning sort of the riffs like you would mm -hmm. learn riffs in a blues style to play to, to improv in blues. It's learning the riffs in classical styles too, mm -hmm. you know, to be sort of fluent in a given style. Oh yeah, and the, and this is a topic we could talk for seven hours on, but the the best per so that that's one way that I kind of teach my students about improv is that you you have what's called your material, right? And your material is that dee da dee da dee da dee da dee da dee da dee da. You know, that's one of your you know ten thousand little ditties in your head. You know, and and. And the best one, I think, well, Bach was really good at this, but the, be the best one ever was Beethoven. I mean, you know, the Fifth Symphony is the best example where he takes that and moves it down and does yeah. the same thing. Then he chops it off into da 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 ba dee 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 da ba da 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 dee 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 you know. And, like, that, that's, that's really all you have to do. It's hard, right? I mean, it's hard when people think you're playing anything wrong. Yeah, yeah you know. I, I mean... It, it, in any style, you're trying to sound like you're not just regurgitating riffs, right? Mm -hmm. You're trying to make them into a coherent whole and make them in, into, you know, coherent phrases, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So it's not just your, like, collection of riffs that, you know, here are my blues riffs now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so it, it's just becoming familiar with the riffs in order that, that they can become building blocks in your musical language. Yeah, yeah. And so that when you become a more mature player, you're not just stringing together these little building blocks, they're actually becoming sentences right, instead right. of sub-phrases or right. whatever. Yeah, and I guess I'm talking about like first day or something, oh, you know, okay. I mean, you're, you're sure. talking about the later, which I totally right. agree with. I mean, you want it to, you know, you want it to sound, uh, yeah, authentic's a stupid word, but, but you want it to sound very natural instead of these uh, predetermined, like, I mean, that's definitely arguing with, uh, 
like talking points or something as as a you know political debates or something instead of your own fluid thoughts. But uh, uh-huh. yeah, um, so yeah, man. I mean, we're kind of kind of wrapping up here, but uh, the one uh, so la- last kind of question for you is: um, Do you have any other like we've talked a little bit about playing? Do you have any other like like general music advice for for twenty year olds like not necessarily specifically piano oriented but um yeah um be versatile and be organized mm. you know um so musicians for whatever reason sometimes get a bad rap for not being organized mm. when they can be some of the most organized people on on earth mm. and uh, you know show up on time mm. that kind of thing. Mm. Um, but, but also from the versatility standpoint, just because you're a, you know, piano player branch out, I mean, maybe you played clarinet in high school or, you know, and you can pick Mm -hmm. up a sax and, and you can play in a pit, you know, something like that. Um, chances are, um, eventually you'll find your niche in the music biz Mm. and have a chance to grow in one particular area. But before that, you're going to be doing a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. Or you should be doing a lot of things. And that's good for you as a person to uh, experience that and to be able to grow uh, into that. But it also makes you much more valuable to prospective employers. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, uh, everyone's also familiar with um, computer uh, based stuff now so uh, for example even if you're not an arranger I'd get familiar with Finale or Sibelius or, mm-hmm. or um, Dorico um, so that you can you know write ideas out communicate your ideas to other people uh, make yourself useful to maybe someone who's hired you on the gig to or, you know write mm-hmm. parts or whatever um, so be as versatile as possible. Yeah, that's cool. Finale can get pretty fast, right? I mean, it's horrible at first, right? I mean, you're taking eight years to do one piece, but like... <clears throat> yeah, yeah. And, you know, I kind of got in on the ground level there because it mm. was, you know, basically a new piece of software when I got in mm. on it. Uh, so it's second nature to me now. Sure. But... Uh, you know exactly where that quarter note is and you know how to yeah, erase exactly. and then you start, and, you and start you, clicking you, you all over do, the place. You can do anything with oh, Finale, yeah. literally anything. Yeah, so. wow. Yeah, and so you, you said a couple of interesting things there too. Like, that, that talking about the finding your niche, that was a thing that was annoying to me when I first got into town. Like, when people would give me that advice, and I didn't really, I sort of knew what they meant, but I didn't really know what they meant because I know in Kansas City, there is kind of a lot of different things that you can do. And I think there are some people that have been getting on the like the, the church music niche, and they, they are getting these you know, seven different churches where they, they start are starting to get the guy's name and, and starting to get calls for sure. doing church music and they accidentally never get to do the band stuff and they're, they're not that mad either, you know, I mean, they have this gig and they don't hate it and they like it, you know, and, and like the fight. So like, what would you say to those people that like, for example, for myself, I was like, okay, I'm gonna be a jazz guy, you know, and when I got into town, I'm like, okay, I'm gonna study my stuff, and then I realized after I went to my third or fourth country band in a row, I'm like, ugh, I don't like this, but I'm actually pretty good at it, you know, like, and then I found, and then the, the blues jams was another kind of different thing from the jazz, and I'm like, man, I can go here and like, you know, shredded up with no practice and like everybody's really enjoying me there i'm meeting tons of friends and i realized that the country kind of blues world is now my niche and i was annoyed that you know i wanted the jazz guys to be my niche but i was you know like what would you say to those people that are trying to trying to force something but they're maybe realizing that this is my bread and butter do you have any opinion about that or yeah um I'd be kind of resistant to, you know, saying that this is my thing right on mm-hmm. without exploring and finding out what, what's out mm-hmm. there. Um, you know, I compare it to walking into a new job, uh, for example, um, where you're going in and you're doing a lot more listening than you are talking, for example. Um, and so if I were trying to get into the jazz scene, first I'd, I'd start going to the clubs, right, and just listening to who's around town. And that sort of thing, 
Um, maybe you do uh, the kind of thing where you meet someone at the gig, you take them out for lunch or something, mm -hmm. find out you know what the scene's like. Uh, and then there are other ways into that scene too. Uh, for example, there's um, studios here in town that you know do some jazz recording um, out at. Uh, um, I think it used to be Soundtrack, now it's uh, Sound 81, I believe, out in Parkville. Mm -hmm. uh, they do a lot of jazz recording out there, so you, maybe you go pick the studio owner's brain and you know, find mm -hmm. out what's going on there. But uh, yeah, it's, it's a relationship. It's just building relationships mm -hmm. like you would in any context. Yeah, so, so that, that being versatile or whatever is kind of is opposite of what I was saying and a little bit opposite concept of just, you know, you find your niche and you, you know, obviously I'm not saying don't broaden because I love broadening your horizon and that's how you get better. And, uh, I just was, I guess I was just because I like jazz better than I like country that annoyed sure. me, you know, yeah, but, sure. but, but I realized that I'm, you know, that, if I get the right person who I'm playing with now, Scott Lane, he has a really fun set list for country, you know, and so it's not a drag at all. And so, and the money's pretty decent. And so, you know, it's just like, I guess, you know, I was thinking of fighting, fighting a thing, you know, uh, Dr. Phil keeps saying like, how's that working for you? You know, and he's, he's a silly man, but, but that's a great line, you know, and that, I guess that's where I was coming from. Yeah, like, yeah. In, in connection with that, I saw a great line the other day, you know, the uh, sort of the working definition of insanity is doing the same thing repeatedly and expecting something to be different. Yeah. Uh, but isn't that what we do as musicians when we practice? We, we keep on doing the same thing, and yeah, we improve. That's yeah, what practice yeah, yeah. is about, right? Right, is doing the same thing over and <laughs> over, over and over yeah. again. And the different result is we yeah. get better because we're yeah. practicing. That's good. That's a good point. That's a good devil's advocate on that a little bit. But uh, yeah, man. Um, so cool. So so we're wrapping up here. Uh, last last question for you. Do you have a uh, kind of a, a moment in the music business that was kind of just funny that you'll never forget, or or, or horrible, or you know like really um, funny now and not so funny there? Yeah, I, I was uh, I was doing a band gig at Hallbrook Country Club, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the drummer for whatever reason didn't show for the mm -hmm. gig. And, uh, and so the guitar player and I are, are uh, standing there trying to figure out what we're going to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the bride's father came up and said, if you guys don't start playing right now, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> and the guitar player, God bless him, had some great line, uh, something, something to the effect of, well, sir, if you do that, then, you know, you're in front of all these people. You're going to disappoint your daughter terribly. And he talked mm -hmm. his way out of yeah, that. But, that's, you know, yeah, when you're <laughs> that's good. Happiest that's day good. in her life. Yeah. And, you know, you're going to kill the band. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's smooth. That was a yeah. good way to handle that. Like, so what So what happened? Did you guys do it? or did? Uh, yeah, we actually called a sub in. And yeah, he wow. somehow got there by the second set. Oh, so wow. We saved the gig. But That is yeah, funny. Yeah. You don't start. I'm going to kill I'm you. Going to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> you thought it was just like we're not. You're not getting paid. You know, no, well, whatever no, no, it turned no. out to be. Yeah. That's funny. <laughs> but that that's another funny moment when guy. Some people are just like that. They're they able to. Uh, she has a friend that's like that, where she can give you like I'm exaggerating, but she could give you the advice like, or give, giving you the news that like you're gonna die. But then, like, after the conversation, you're, like, thanking her. You know, she just has this way with people of sure. saying it to them where they, they can just get out of it, you yeah, know. And exactly. My buddy Scott is kind of like that. He's just got a really good gift for Gab, and he's just going to he's gonna talk you into anything because he's really funny, and he can say the right. And, and that, that's a and, – and, and you said something also really funny is this is just people that don't know musicians. This is just a life. I mean, you – you can get called and like, hey, we got a gig, right. like in ten minutes. Yeah. Can you come fill this? You don't know any of the songs. Right. You don't know. You know, come. We don't care how you. Put, we know how good you are. If you screw up ten times, we don't care. We need right. somebody right now. Yeah. Yep, exactly. And Being able to do that is a real skill. Yeah. Get play forty songs. Yep, exactly. 
But what people don't understand is that, like a classic rock gig for forever, you know, somebody who's uh, who who who's your age and older. I mean, you know, they call "Fly Like an Eagle." Well, you've you've heard that right. at least fourteen hundred times, times. You know, yeah. So so it's not, you know, you 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 know some of them. Yeah, true. You know, and so right. it's yeah. So, um, cool, man. Well, uh, definitely. Thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks and, for having uh, me. Yeah, I was I was really glad to get. I'm um, trying to get a lot of different kinds of people, so getting to talk a little bit about the church stuff was really cool, and the publishing stuff was something we haven't had anybody on here talk about, so that was cool. And cool. Uh, um, yeah, I think uh, our next one is going to be with uh, my grandfather, uh, Maynard Zip, and that should be really cool. He's been playing sixty something years, and. Uh, and uh, we're gonna do his interview here in a couple days, and and so definitely be watching for that one. It's gonna be a, definitely gonna be a good one. Sharing you 60, 70 years of wow. of knowledge and nonsense, and the, you That's know, great. so it's gonna be a good interview. But um, we'll uh, we'll have we'll have more of this stuff on uh, on Casey Music Talk. Uh, Rick Deasley, thanks, thanks, Thank man, you. thanks for coming on. Appreciate so, it. Uh, um, that's it. We'll see you guys later. <laughs>